In the book of Luke, we read about the most exciting event to ever happen in our world, the birth of Christ. Luke's gospel lays out a story filled with anticipation, intrigue, wonder, and hope-filled news for humankind. It was the day when God's great plan of salvation and redemption was irrevocably launched. And as we look to the cast of characters God gathered together, our eyes are open to a new response, focus, and growth in the Christmas season. And may our Christmas be filled with the same worship as the scholars and astronomers who offered gifts to the King of all kings. This morning, we light the fourth candle of Advent, the candle of peace. As we continue our Advent journey towards Christmas, we focus and celebrate the one Isaiah prophesied. He said that he would be both the mighty God and the Prince of Peace. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The Magi worshiped the king. It was not because they were supposed to or because he required it, but because their hearts, their hearts demanded it of them. They encountered the word who became flesh, God with us, and they were never the same again. All the more as Christmas nears, let each one of us seek God and give him the worship and praise he rightly deserves. May he meet you in your gift, and may you find him like all wise men do. The God of peace is truly with us. Peace is not based upon class or position or occupation, but on his purpose and design to bring good news that will cause great joy to all people. Glory to God in the highest. The Prince of Peace has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Please reveal the areas in our lives that fail to reflect your heart. Please protect us from a familiarity to reflect your heart with you and your word may it always be new and changing our hearts. Oh Lord, give us hearts like the Magi who sought you and worshiped you when they found you. Be present in our Christmas and be glorified in our lives. In your name, amen. Well, we all know this is a big time of year. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, raise your hand if you're excited about Christmas. Me. 
Okay, well, why are you so excited about Christmas? I love it because ornaments, Christmas trees, stockings, bubble gum. Bubble gum. Okay, well, <laughs> can someone tell me the story of Christmas? Angel comes to Mary and tells her that um, she's pregnant and she's going to have a baby do you, boy. Do you remember what city they went to? Bethlehem, that's right. And what happened when they got to Bethlehem? They went to a stable. A stable. And what's a stable? <gasps> yes. It's a farm that oh, they had the, that must have been itchy. Yeah, why was it itchy? Because it was hay. Oh, they put, <laughs> filled with hay. Why did they have to go to Bethlehem to have the baby? I don't think they stayed in a place with a hospital. So they had to go to Bethlehem? Yeah. On a camp. No, okay, okay, that was a donkey? Yeah. Okay, so they went on a donkey to Bethlehem because it had a hospital. <laughs> a donkey at a hospital? <laughs> What's Christmas about? It's about Jesus being born and then the shepherds come because they see the star. What kind of star? They just see a star in the sky or? It's like a plus sign. It's the X mark, the spot, because if you turn it that way, it's an X and you find the treasure and it's Jesus. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. No, I mean, I mean, you don't have to back up. Who told the shepherds about Jesus? Angels. What do you think the angels look like? <gasps> I know what I know. Um, they look like flying butterflies. Oh wow! What do the angels sing? Uh, go to the bathroom. Can I go to the bathroom? Sure. Uh. <laughs> so, what did the wise men do? Bring gifts. Do you know what they brought? Let's see. Baby toys for baby Jesus. <laughs> they brought Jesus baby toys. What other things do you think they brought? Mm, gold money and... So, so they brought mud. <laughs> hey, look, I know there's something <gasps> oh, I got that, one. that starts with an M. Merchandise. Merchandise. Okay. So gold and merchandise, why do we still celebrate the birth of Jesus, even today? Um, because he's my savior. And so that's why we still celebrate Christmas? Yeah. It's a long story. Well, they got the main things right. The rest of it's a little, a little sketchy there. Kids are fun, aren't they? Oh, you don't think so? <laughs> I said kids are fun, aren't they? They're wonderful, wonderful time of year. We've been considering the cast of Christmas, the choir rather than just the soloist, and listening to what they have to say. We've talked about the prophets, the angels, and the shepherds as they honored Jesus, and this morning we're going to talk about the wise men. And I don't think there are any, uh, any part of the Christmas story that has more misinformation wrapped around it than what we believe about the wise men. And I'm working on a brand new Christmas song, and I hope to publish by next year. It's titled, We Three Kings of Orient Aren't. There's so much wrapped around the story. And I want to tell you what we do, uh, and this is a little silly, but I think it'll help illustrate the point where I want to go this morning. How many of you have heard that Ray Charles is God? How many of you know who Ray Charles is? Oh, good, good. Well, it goes like this. 
God is love, correct? Love is blind. Ray Charles is blind, therefore Ray Charles is God. Now, what does that illustrate? It illustrates that correlation and causation are not the same. And we often find things in Scripture that seem to correlate, and so we unjustly link them together to come to conclusions. In fact, you may as well believe that the angels look like butterflies as some of the other things that we teach and believe about the wise men. And why does it matter? Because it, the reason it matters is when you get to the heart of the truth, it's more powerful than any of the fiction that we write. And I think the two areas where Christian theology writes the most fiction is in his first advent when he came and then our eschatology about his second advent. That we, uh, we tend to keep ourselves confused not only about his coming the first time but what it will look like his coming the second time. So I want to kind of unpack a little bit about the wise men. And I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas so I, don't send me coal in the mail. I'll just pass it on to the staff. And by the way, sidebar, uh, for those of you that wonder, yes, I do know I'm wearing glasses today. <laughs> Several people say, you're wearing glasses, as though I didn't know. I just want you to know that I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know I had them on. So uh, thanks for noticing. I was going to tell people I shaved my beard. It wasn't glasses, but... There's so many things about the wise men that are really kind of challenging to sort out. And we sing that they were kings. We three kings. As early as AD 200, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, was laying out arguments that the Magi, uh, while astrologers by trade, were considered kings. John Calvin felt strongly about anyone who would label them three kings. And here's what Calvin wrote about that teaching. Beyond all doubt, they have stupefied, they have been stupefied by the righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. Um, you know, they kind of hurled stuff at each other, I'm discovering, in the early days of the development of the church. Were they kings? There's Nothing in Scripture to suggest that they were kings or in history to suggest that they're kings other than a prophetic text that involves kings coming to kneel before the Messiah. They would bow before him, and so we take that event. There were three gifts, so we say there were three kings, and there's this verse over here, and we end up with Ray Charles as God. How many were there? Three, right? Because there were three gifts. It's unknown. We don't know how many there were. What about their names? I was doing some research on the, uh, the three wise men, and one of the questions that Google suggested was, what was the name of the black wise man? Well, I wanted to know how they decided in those pictures that one was black. I'm glad if there was. It's not an issue that way at all. It's how did you come to that? And again, it's some scriptures that get linked together. We don't know how many from the Christmas story. What were their names? Well, we read that and it's in place, but until the 8th century, the, they didn't have names. Those were added by a writer in the 8th century. And they weren't at the manger. They weren't at the manger. They came to the house. We don't know how old Jesus was then. We know that he had already been born. How many know that he was already born? 
And Herod, after meeting with the wise men, killed all of the babies in the area, uh, or put out an order, I should say, to kill all the babies in the area two years and younger because he wanted to cover that. So somewhere between a few days to a few months to maybe a year and a half, Jesus would have been there um, growing up in those early days. They weren't at the manger. So let me just say this about the manger scene in case some of you are really, really upset and you're ready to leave right now. Your manger scene with the shepherds and the wise men and the angel, that's wonderful. It's not true chronologically, but it's true synthetically. In other words, what I mean in synthesis, it captures all of the characters that came to see Jesus, and I'm fine with that picture. It captures all of the characters. I think that's healthy as long as we understand that they weren't all there at the same time. Okay, why does that matter? Because the story becomes even more powerful. They make a unique journey to see the newborn king. When you think about the groups we've talked about so far, none of them initiated a journey on their own, really, to see Jesus. The prophets foretold what they would never see. They were moved on by the Holy Spirit and proclaimed his coming, though they would never get to the manger. The only ones who were there that were prophetic at all would have been or heard him or met him or saw him would have been John the Baptist, Simeon, and Anna the prophetess. The angels were sent on an assignment, go and make proclamation. The shepherds were given an assignment, go and see the child. But the wise men capture, I think, for us what the journey to Bethlehem really looks like in the life of people today. They were a long ways from where the birth of Jesus was going to take place. And when we look at what motivated them and drove them to come to meet the Christ child at the exact right time, I believe, reveals some important truths about our journey to meet Christ. You see, we celebrate that he has come, but we believe that he will come. That's what Advent is about. We celebrate that he has come, his first Advent, but we believe there's a second Advent that he is coming back. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the same journey the wise men were on to get to the first advent is the same journey that you and I should be on on our way to prepare for his second coming. What does that look like? What are the important dynamics of this journey? Number one, it begins with preparing. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. So what do we wrap around that? We take that verse without any research and we put them as part of a false cult that worshiped the stars and were reading the stars and getting their direction from the stars as astrologers rather than taking time to really dig into what would have been happening in that part of the world at that time. Why would they be watching for the birth of the king of the Jews if they were pagan wise men that worshiped the stars? Were they really pagan astrologers? And if they were, why did God sovereignly single them out to come and witness the birth of Christ? Because he does not respond to doubt. He does not respond to unbelief. What does God respond to in Scripture? He always responds to faith. 
And that should undergird everything we believe about the Christmas story. He responds to people of faith. Scripture opposes astrology. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, the host of heaven, and feel driven to worship them and serve them, take heed, lest that happen. Deuteronomy chapter 17, if there is found among you any which worshiped either the sun, moon, or the host of heaven, which I have not commended, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman, expel them. Isaiah chapter 47, let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from these things that shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be a stubble, the fire shall burn them up, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Scripture is clear that God's opposed to reading the stars to get a message from him, and yet we bypass systematic theology in order to create a story that seems to fit us that these pagan astrologers are getting direction from the stars, and somehow they understand from the stars that a king has been born, and they come to see the king. It waters down the power of the text. It diminishes the power of faith. It takes us away from the normal pathway to get to Jesus. How many are hearing what I'm saying? Here's what is normally said. The Magi of Babylon were heathen physicians, priests, and learned men. And it is said that they descended from the evil line of perverted priests and sorcerers that is said to include Haman from the book of Esther and Bar-Jesus or Elamus from Acts 13. Again, it's all speculation. But historically, if you just do the work of history and take the theology of Scripture, you begin to discover that there was another class of wise men throughout that entire region. Who were they? It could be said that they were from the school of Daniel. Now watch this. There was another class of magi. Do you remember that Daniel went to Babylon? Do you remember that many of Israel were put into Babylon and they were told not to hang their harps? They were told how to influence and season the land that they were in. Why? I believe that part of the Babylonian captivity was because of their rebellion. But in the Babylonian captivity, God was seasoning a nation to be ready to come so that the gospel would not be limited to Jerusalem, but would be proclaimed to all the nations of the world. Here's what happened to Daniel. Watch this. Daniel chapter 2. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. How many are still listening? This is really important to get. And placed him, who? Daniel. Who was Daniel? The guy that goes in the lion's den. The guy that will not compromise truth. The guy that we set up as a man of faith. He placed Daniel in charge of all the wise men of Babylon. <laughs> oh, does the story change now? They were not pagan astrologers trying to read from a demonic manifestation this line of magi. Daniel wasn't over some of them. Are you hearing me? He was over all of the magi of Babylon. Who has in Scripture 
the greatest revelations about the second advent of Christ, if not Daniel. The majority of our eschatology is built on Daniel chapter 9. And we read and wonder and read and wonder. And you're going to tell me that Daniel, this man of faith, had authority over all of the wise men and taught them to be astrologers? No. He taught them to be students of the scriptures. He taught them to be students of the most high God. We would call them God-fearers who are pursuing after God in a strange land. And most of Israel, when they came back to rebuild the holy city, did not return. Most of the Jews stayed in Babylon practicing their religion under the tutelage of Daniel and were salting and influenced the entire region of Babylon. They knew because their school had been taught by the prophet Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel power and opportunity to make significant changes in the way the Magi operated in Babylon. He would have passed along to the Magi the, na- the need to watch in Judea for some of the things that he saw in those heavenly visions. A large number of Jews, Levites, Benjamites, still lived in Babylon. The surrounding areas as only a small number returned. Some of them found the example of who? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would rather be thrown into the fire than bow their knee to the king, how many of you think they'd sow truth into everyone around them? You see how the picture begins to change, how it begins to shift, that those that came were men who were responding to faith that had been taught them by the prophet Daniel. It is probable then that the Magi who visited the young Jesus would come under this second category of God-fearing, high-ranking leaders. Why else do you believe that they were God-fearers? Descendants of the exiled house of Israel, they could just as well have been part of that Jewish dispersion. Why would we believe that? Because they were divinely warned to flee to their homeland after their visit. Who does God warn to flee from destruction except those who have put their faith and confidence in him as the God of all creation? Why would he warn pagans? He wouldn't. Well, somebody say, I hope this gets over soon. I watched a video of someone teaching on the wise men who made these five conclusions that I'm not going to take time to totally unpack, but I just want you to think about the conclusions that others are making so you know this isn't just me. In a review of the wise men, Some of the material that I'm sharing with you this morning, as well as material from others, he came to these five conclusions. Number one, that the wise men who came to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, then to Bethlehem, read and believed the word of God. Number two, they sought Jesus. Number three, they recognized the worth of the Messiah. Number four, they humbled themselves to worship Jesus. And number five, They chose to obey God rather than man. I'm describing to you men of faith. They're preparing for the newborn king. They had been spending um, generations. They had been spending time listening, learning, and 
searching the scriptures. So why the star? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Why would they have been watching for a star then if they weren't necessarily astrologers getting their fortunes from the heavenlies? Because it's possible that Balaam may have been part of the Magi in a different sense. And in any event, they would have been familiar with the prophecies of Balaam. You see, there's a time when the king of Moab, Balak, wanted a prophet to curse Israel. And as you read this story, he calls for Balaam, and Balaam comes to curse the nation, and he can't. His mouth is stopped, and these blessings are pronounced about Israel. And it makes, it makes the king really, really angry. But here's one of the things that Balaam prophesies contrary to his will. When Balak is paying him to curse Israel, here's what comes out of Balaam's mouth. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheph and Edom shall be a possession. Seir will also be a possession for his enemies, and Israel will do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and destroy him that remains of the city. Now, I don't have time to unpack the prophetic eschatological impact of that, except to call your attention to one phrase that Balaam pronounces that would have been in the record. <clears throat> there shall come a star out of Jacob. Where did the understanding of the star came, come from? It didn't come from a study of astrology. It came from the prophetic word of God and they're looking Daniel would have said watch because before he comes there will be a star that will rise <laughs> Whoo! I'm starting to feel it there will be a star that will rise and they were watching for that star to rise that would signal the birth of the king of the Jews that Daniel was willing to give his life for, that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego walked in the fire for. And what does it say about them? When the king looked in, what did he see? He said, I see a fourth man like unto the Son of God. It's those men who would have prophesied about the coming of a Messiah and taught all the wise men who from that generation until the birth of Christ were watching for a star, a star that would rise over Israel. That's how they got there. They made preparation. The journey to the manger begins with preparation. Jesus has already come. And if you're in a place this morning that you're saying, show yourself to me, he did. And now the task is for you to go and find him. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We're told to Press in. All the things that are talking about preparing our hearts, studying. What are you doing to prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord? What scriptures are you spending time in? What word from God have you heard? What fasting are you doing? What is your preparation? Because if you want to be there and see the child, if you want to see the miracle of Jesus in your life, where does it start? preparing yourself with the word of God. Let's get saturated in that. Let's fill our hearts with that. 
Let's make sure we have the word of God planted down on the inside of us because his word will not return to him void. It will accomplish the things whereunto he sends it, and you can bet your life on that. Are you hearing me this morning? I believe what I'm saying to you. The journey to Bethlehem begins with preparation, and it may be years before you see anything happen, but the issue of preparation, I'm filling myself with the word, I'm preparing. You cannot, listen, here's how it works. If you met someone that needed demonic deliverance and you have to go fast, as scripture says, it's too late for them. You prepare before the encounter. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You read the word of God. You spend time in prayer. You spend time fasting ahead of it. And what is the message of the second advent? It's too late to prepare after the bridegroom comes. There were 10 virgins, five wise and five foolish. And when the bridegroom came, it was too late to prepare. And five were left behind. They were virgins. They were pure. They were believing. They were there. But they missed his coming because they didn't prepare for it. Wise men who get to the manger begin their journey with intensive preparation. Are you preparing? Are you preparing to see the king? <laughs> Looks like most of you prepared to get here this morning. How many of you did some preparation? Yeah, the rest of you, I believe that you didn't, but those that did. How many of you brushed your teeth? Hold up your hand. If you don't raise your hand, people are going to start moving away right now. <laughs> we make preparation. Doesn't it make sense then if we're going to make preparation to be with people? We ought to make preparation to be with him. Begins with preparation. Then from preparation, it moves to pursue. You prepare, and then you pursue. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They had to put their preparation to work. There's a moment where all of your preparing now comes to fruition, and you have to do something about it. What does that mean? It means simply this. You can read all the scriptures about healing that you want to read, but there's going to come a point you need to quit preparing and start laying hands on somebody. I started to mention this earlier. I want to bring it more into focus here. Jesus has already come. What's the principle of scripture today? You draw near to him, and he will draw nigh to you. Seek him, and he will be found of you. Ask and it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you, because everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. They shall lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. They put their feet in the water, and it rolls back. And for every child of God, there comes a moment when you have to take your preparation and now begin to pursue the object of your preparation. They saw the star. <laughs> can you imagine? I'm just, this is purely, you can call it Pilcher's fiction if you want. But I'm just thinking about what that must have felt like all of these years of teaching. Can you imagine when one of the wise men said, do you see what I see? Come out here. You've got to see what I see. Could that be it? A star over Israel, brighter than any star of the sky. 
What was it? I don't know. They talk about how the planets moved. It could have been a planet. It could have been a supernova. It could have been a meteor. It could have been an angel. I don't know. I just know that they saw it and they celebrated and said it's time. There's a star moment when it's time to quit studying and start doing something to begin your pursuit. Now, this is interesting to me. I'm going to press this a little bit more. When the wise men got to Jerusalem, <clears throat> some of you aren't going to like this, okay? How many are you going to love me when this is over? The rest of you didn't love me anyway. It's all good. It's all fine. It's all good. <laughs> but this, oh, this got my engines going as I dug a little deeper into the story. Why was all Jerusalem troubled? Three guys on camels? I'm scared. I, there had to be some, don't you think? There had to be something more than that, than these three guys singing, we three kings, and we have them riding into town of Orientar. You know, it's like the, Seven dwarfs come riding into, what is going on here? Why are they terrified? There had to be something else happening here. Well, number one, we don't know that there were three. Had they traveled from that far, there would have been an entire entourage with them. And you say, well, they had camels because they crossed the desert. There was a trade route that went from the east all the way through to Jerusalem. And the common mode of travel in that day by foreign lands was not camel, it was horses. So as they came riding into town, here come these, these rulers, these leaders, these men of power from the east with a large entourage riding into town. Why would all Jerusalem have been troubled? Well, let me give you a little more of the story. East of Judea, the nations of Persia, Babylonia, and Assyria were not part of the Roman Empire, but part of the large and powerful Parthian Empire. So at that time, to the east was the Parthian Empire, east of Israel, which was a serious rival to Rome and defeated several attempts by the Roman legions, including one led by Herod himself. Herod had led an army against the Parthian Empire and every attack from Rome against the Parthian Empire was driven back. Now, understanding that there was threats being made by the Persians, the Parthian Empire, against Rome along the boundaries between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire, and you know that Herod led one of those raids against the Parthian Empire that was turned back, and you see a host, a caravan, of powerful people coming from the Parthian Empire to Herod, all Jerusalem is going to be troubled because that is the mark of terms of surrender. In, in essence, what I'm saying is, in that economy, to have that big an entourage of leaders come in to Jerusalem to see the king would have been, we're going to give you terms to surrender before we go back and come back with the armies and annihilate you. All Jerusalem would have been troubled at that moment. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 
Where do you get that in Scripture? I don't. You can argue with me about that. I get that from history. The war between Rome and the Parthians was clear. And if they came from the east, they'd have had to come from the Parthian Empire. And Herod had tried to defeat them. And when they all come riding into town on horses, rather than ambling in three guys on camels, the whole picture changes. You know what happens? It's another expression of the military might. Not, not only had God sent heavenly angels to make the announcement, he sent warriors from the east to come and welcome him. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. God is announcing, you will not interrupt the plan of redemption that I have for the nation of Israel, for my people. No wonder Herod was troubled and all of Israel was troubled. The religious leaders were undoubtedly embarrassed as well as troubled that they of all people had to be informed by foreigners about the coming of the Messiah. Where is he? The king of the Jews. Who should know that? The Jews should know that. The scribes should know that. The Pharisees should know that. They didn't even heed Balaam's prophecy that would have been in their own writings. They ignored it. And God, here's what you got to understand, church. If we're, if we're not going to welcome him in, if we're not going to do his bidding, God will raise up another people that will. There should have been Roman soldiers around the birth of that baby. There should have been a welcoming committee of Israel. But Israel was so far removed from the voice of God and couldn't hear. In fact, if you look at the revivals of history in our own nation, when did those revivals it's went break forth? It's when the church had lost its way, was no longer seeking God, and those movements that once carried the touch of God lay down their anointing, and God raises up another group to bring revival to his people. And if it won't be Berean, if it won't be the Assemblies of God, it'll be somebody else. And I don't want it to be kings from the east or leaders from the east. I want it to be the people of God that are in Jerusalem that lead the charge. It ought to be up to us to begin to pursue him with all of our passion. With all of our passion. You have to begin to pursue him. You can't just wait for him to come. Why? Because he already came 90% of the way. What are you doing to pursue him? Psalm 63, verse 8, my soul follows hard after you. Your right hand upholds me. Can your, listen, can your characterization of your pursuit of Christ be marked as following hard after him? What does it look like in your life that you're given your passion to pursue him? Would you be willing to go on a journey that was months, could even have been, depending on where they came from, could even have been years on that journey to get there? And the further away they were, the larger the entourage would have been to carry all of their supplies. They'd counted the cost and they began to pursue. Are you following hard after him? Or, or do you, I'm not trying to be punchy, but or do you come to church saying, all right, God, if you're going to show up, I'm ready to watch. They got there because their preparation led them to a pursuit. It captured their imagination. It fueled their hearts. They had been watching for this, and nothing was going to get in the way of that. We are going to see for ourselves the king of the Jews that has been 
born. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not take for granted your own salvation with peace and apathy. As the deer pants for the water brook, so longs my soul or pants my soul after you, O God. When was the last time you were so hungry for him, so thirsty for him, that you couldn't stand it until you had the satisfaction that your soul cries for? And Paul said, I press the mark. I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do. Don't you think that maybe if I could make a corollary, don't you think that maybe along the way, they had to look at each other and say, we've come a long way, but we're not there yet. I have to think about the wise men when I hear Paul say, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I have not arrived yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting the road that I've traveled so far, I press forward for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things that are behind, I reach forth to those things that are before. I'm going to get there. Is that the passion that drives us? We're going to get there. We're not going to be satisfied until this place is full, until my neighbors find Jesus, till my family's safety inside, safely inside the fold of faith. I will not rest till I see him, the king of the Jews, the one for whom my soul craves. Oh, I'm not done yet. I'm preaching a series this morning. We have to prepare. Then we have to pursue. And what will prove preparation pursuit is real? It's when you're ready to present. It's when you're ready to present. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, they weren't out shopping. They had prepared for the day. They weren't saying, wonder what they got at the dollar store. I think I saw him. I saw him. Someone run over the dollar store. We need to get some gifts here. Not at all. Think about that. From the day they started, they believed they would see him, and they carried with them gifts. It's not because now baby Jesus would need those in the natural, but I believe every time we gather for worship, we should bring a gift with us. When you read in the Old Testament and they came to the temple, there was always a gift that they brought. It's always part of the worship experience, bringing something from you to present to him. <laughs> they came to worship him. It's really interesting what they brought, and I don't want to make it bigger than it is. And again, this is application, not necessarily anything I can prove, but it seems to fit with the story to me. What did they bring? They brought gold. Who did you give gold to? Well, in that day, gold was a gift for kings and for deities. You brought gold to kings and to deities. Frankincense, what is that? It's a spice of worship. In the Old Testament, it was used in worship. It was used all around the world as a spice of worship. They were bringing gold to a king that they intended to worship. And what was myrrh? Myrrh was also used in worship, but it was one of the primary spices in embalming. <laughs> Is there anybody else feeling what I'm feeling right now? What did they bring? They brought 
they brought gifts for a king that they came to worship, that they knew were going to die, and they brought it all, the story of the Christ child wrapped up in the gifts of the kingdom. They came prepared. They came prepared. On a practical side, how did Mary and Joseph and Jesus survive in Egypt? Well, they had some gold. They had some frankincense. They had some myrrh, all that were expensive gifts that in their presenting, the needs of the family were provided for. You see, I'm convinced that worship always involves giving. Worship is not primarily about getting. It's about what you bring to give to the king. Now, how many of you will have some kind of, and I, and I know some people don't, and I'm, I'm not trying to make anyone feel badly. If, if you're alone this Christmas, I, I understand, I'm empathetic. But most people are planning to gather how many of you are planning to gather for Christmas? All right, let me ask you that are gathering. How many of you are gathering at your house? Okay, so the gathering will be at your house. Can you imagine? And how many of you are grandparents? Wow, all the grandparents are coming to your house. That's great. That's wonderful. But can you imagine sitting there Christmas morning? Everybody comes in. There's nothing under the tree. And you say, ah, we forgot the gifts. We're just glad you're here. We're still going to party. We had plenty of opportunity. Money wasn't a problem. We just, we just didn't prepare or pursue presenting anything. How many of you know Christmas is over? How many know they're liable to burn your house down? <laughs> because when you celebrate Christmas, there's supposed to be something you present. And that is the heart of worship. What are you going to give to the king? What are you going to present from your life? When he comes the second time, I want to have prepared, and I want to have pursued, but I also want to have something that I present to him as the worship of my life. Paul writes to the church in Rome, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're presenting yourself and worship without an offering is no worship at all. Are you saying, because I didn't put anything in the, in the bag, I can't worship? No, because giving is much more than what you put. In fact, your financial giving is simply a symptom of where you are spiritually. It reflects where you are spiritually because people who give themselves to God, I don't have to talk to you about giving of their resources. It's people who don't give their resources that you want to get their heart 
because it's not given to God. You prepare, you pursue, and you're ready to present. There is a path to the manger. We have lit the candle of peace. How does the story end? How does the story end? I've already alluded to it, but it is so powerful on this Peace Sunday of Advent. This way. They prepared. They pursued. They presented. And God got them back home safe. He protected them. God's protection comes to those who prepare, pursue, and present their gifts. And he will warn you, it's not your time to come home. Doesn't mean nothing bad will happen to you. But you can be sure of this. Watch, watch this. Just as surely as God the Father was watching over the birth of the Christ child, he was watching over the journey of the wise men and wanted them to get home safe so they could tell all of the pagan lands what they had seen in that special city. I don't know about you, but I want the whole world to know. I want to be ready. I want to be one of his wise men. In fact, Scripture tells us that the person who wins souls is wise. Would you stand with me? And I want us to take a moment to just worship the king. I want us to take a moment to just celebrate who he is. And here's, I want you to pray just for a moment. I want you to pray, Jesus, I want to be one of your wise men. I want to be one of your wise women. I want to be one who welcomes you when you come the second time.
We love you. We're so thankful for the truth of your word. Let us not be blinded by cultural impositions and pseudo-theology. Let your word burn its way into our hearts and make us people that pursue you and welcome you when you return the second time. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone that loves them said Amen, amen. God bless you. Turn, shake someone's hand. Wish them a Merry Christmas. Be a blessing to someone today.